Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to All Music Podcasts. Our guest today is Jesse Lauter, who is the director of a wonderful new music documentary and concert film, Learning to Live Together, The Return of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, thanks for having me. We are also joined for today's episode by our friend and fellow music film enthusiast, Sonia Collarot. Welcome back, Sonia. Say hi to Jesse. Hello, hello. Hi, Jesse. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Sonia. Well, Jesse, I'm always fascinated by these documentaries in real time. You know, it tells me that someone, perhaps the subject, thinks something important or amazing is going to happen. So I'm curious, how did this movie happen and who made it happen and how did you get involved? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and first, thanks for having me. Um, the Learning to Live Together, The Return of Mad Dogs and Englishmen is definitely a real-time documentary. I think you totally hit the nail on the head. It, but it's a real-time documentary that also you know, takes trips to the past as well, right? We're talking about The Mad Dogs and Englishmen, uh, which was a tour that Joe Cocker put together uh, with Leon Russell in 1970. And there was a documentary around that film and a, a very famous concert album as well. But for fans of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, you know, or at least knew that the Mad Dogs and Englishmen had never reunited in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, this band was a massive band, a massive undertaking. For me, how this came about was I actually hadn't worked with Tedeschi Trucks yet. I had some connections into their camp, but really hadn't done anything with them at this point. Didn't know Derek, didn't know Susan, didn't know their management, all of whom would become partners for me in the making and creation of this film. What happened was was uh, my friend Peter Shapiro, uh, he has a festival in Virginia called the Lockin Festival. And uh, basically the concept of that festival, uh, or at least in the, the early years of the festival, was uh, for the headline act, they would usually pair a famous classic artist with a band. It's a lot of jam bands, so people of the fish world and widespread panic. So John Fogarty with widespread panic happened one year. I think Carlos Santana with Phil Lesh and friends had happened one year. And so for 2015's lock-in, I saw when they announced the lineup that the top bill was a tribute to Joe Cocker Tedeschi Trucks does Mad Dogs and Englishmen with Leon Russell, with Rita Coolidge, with Claudia Lanier and all these other guests. And I just like my jaw dropped because this was the thing that um, as a fan of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I'd been fantasizing about for a very long time. And I would come to learn, uh, you know, by making this film that Tedeschi Trucks was the perfect band to organize this reunion and maybe the only band that could pull something like this off. So for me, it was an easy phone call to Pete Shapiro uh, to get in the room. You know, it took some time for sure. Unbeknownst to me, the Tedeschi Trucks uh, management and agency, which is run by a guy named Wayne Forte and Blake Budney, who had become my producers on the film, they were doing their own sort of research into who could film this who could come in and capture this. And they were sort of striking out, uh, as I would learn. And fortunately for me, I was the one who got in the door with the production team and uh, was able to capture the rehearsals in the show. That's how the initial shoot came about. 
but you know to further <laughs> the uh you know the film and to make it a, a more than just a concert film after the show happened because that's when i kind of met everyone you know i pitched this the concept that it needed to be more than just a film about the reunion i wanted it to be about the history of the original tour, how Leon Russell was sort of the unsung uh, ringleader of the tour, but also, you know, what happened? Why was this music so powerful and influential? Why did it never happen again? And But then also show these generational bonds that existed between the original Mad Dogs, all and all of whom showed up for the reunion and the Tedeschi Trucks Band. That's really cool, because that was my next question, which was sort of what came first, the concert or the film? So you filmed all this stuff and you filmed all the interviews, not necessarily knowing that you were going to make it into a bigger piece. Is that right? Well, I I wanted to make it a bigger piece. I don't think that the band or anyone involved knew that it was going to be something much bigger that would involve, you know, us having to license the original footage from the original film and trying to find the original assets. Uh, when you see the film, we also include a lot of other archival from Leon Russell and uh, from, you know, a lot of other acts that were involved with Mad Dogs members. We have a whole sequence where we meet Claudia Lanier, who is one of the backing vocalists in the group. And um, Claudia was an iket, So we have original footage of Claudia as an iket in the film. But you also have a lot of Joe Cocker footage and photos, uh, you know, prior to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, including from Woodstock, etc. If you're a fan of the original Mad Dogs and Englishmen, you watch it and it's an incredible piece, right? It's really one of the great unsung rock and roll documentaries. At the time, it was a huge critical success and it has this sort of cult following. But the most recent iteration of it that you could find is a DVD from 2005, right? Uh, it's not streamable anywhere, which is really unfortunate. And then on top of that, it's a verite film. It's a ton of B-roll. I've been calling it the uh, Robert Altman movie of rock and roll documentaries right you kind of don't know what's really happening it's like there's a ton of audio beds you're going in one direction they're split screen you don't know who this character is or who this woman is or why that person's on stage or who that person is and why they're you know why they're talking but you kind of after multiple views kind of figure it out and you kind of put the pieces together a fan like me, I, I did a bunch of deep diving and I was sort of like, you know, uh, prior to, to directing this film, you know, trying to figure out who all these people were and then learning about some of the rich histories that a lot of them had. And, uh, you know, Daniel Moore uh, wrote Shambhala for Three Dog Night. Pamela Poland was in a duo with Ry Cooter prior to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Ultimately, the point I'm getting to is that there was a shroud of mystery in the original film and no one had ever really done a history of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. So I saw this as the opportunity to do so and do it with this amazing new reunion that happened uh, in 2015 as sort of the through line through the film. So not only did you take inspiration from it, it sounds like you really, really studied it and had how many times did you watch it? The original film? Yeah, the original. Oh, my God. Countless times. <laughs> and in editing, too. It's funny. My my editor, who gets a ton of credit uh, for just making this all happen, Drew Nicola, who is a director in his own right, he directed uh, the Big Star documentary. When he first tackled it and he watched it for his very first time, you know, he's, oh, this is great. And I think the more and more we watched it, we, it got very tired on us and we kept we would go to each other and be like, man, I, we, I would have done this differently and I would have done this differently. And then, uh, you know, to learn when we were interviewing, uh, when I interviewed Leon Russell, that Leon actually wanted to edit the film himself and he wasn't given the opportunity to do so. So you're a fan of the film, but which did you, was your exposure to first, the film or the record? I was exposed to the film first. 
and it was in 2005. So even though, God, it doesn't seem like that was that long ago, like that's uh, 17 years ago. I was a freshman in college and I... I had a band. There was a lead singer in the band who was very influenced by Joe Cocker. And so the timing was such that we just started the band and that had just been reissued on DVD. I think Universal even put out a box set with some of the more extended cuts from Mad Dogs, which you can hear on um, you know most streaming platforms. And so we watched the movie a ton and it totally transformed my thoughts and feelings about the possibilities of making music. I'd always been attracted to family bands. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, Funkadelic, Sly and the Family Stone is probably my favorite. I'm a big Fish guy, and uh, Trey Anastasio from Fish has a, a solo band called the Trey Anastasio Band, and they're like a 10-piece a band. And so I'd always really liked bands like that with a big horn section and backing vocals and such. And so when I saw this, I was like, well, this is the ultimate. <laughs> this is as big as it gets, right? So um, it had a huge effect on me. And then there was an album to listen to, you know, to take with me. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I hope that your movie kicks off a bit of a Joe Cocker resurgence. He was such a big star, but I feel like people don't remember that right now. And I think that it is probably time for people to revisit his work. I mean, they're revisiting the Beatles right now, and he did a lot of amazing Beatles covers. It sounds like he was super sweet. Everybody talks about how loving he was and how supportive he was. And, you know, it was interesting to hear about how Leon kind of stole the show. Did he really do that? Or, I mean, as Leon said, he was just doing the job he was hired to do. Mm -hmm. So what was your take on the relationship that Joe had with the folks on the original tour when you spoke to them for the interviews? Well, I think, you know, obviously, you know, you bring up a point that it there was a contentious, you know, relationship in hindsight of the tour between Leon and Joe. You know, did they ever really argue or fight on tour? There really was no, um, you know, evidence of such a thing happening. It seemed like with Leon and Joe, the proof was in the pudding and the fact that the two of them never did anything together ever again, which we note in the film. And uh, Leon, you know, was hired to be the musical director of that tour. He did. He was doing his job, but he knew very well going into it. You know, he had a solo record that came out basically at the, the time that that tour was taking off. So his best intentions were in mind to make sure that the music that was being constructed for Joe was, you know, the best thing that they could possibly be. He created these amazing arrangements. He put together an absolutely legendary band. But at the same time, too, it was a very expensive undertaking. And, I, you know, I think in hindsight for everyone, uh, if they had, you know, were a little bit more budget mindful than maybe they wouldn't have put all this on Joe's back, so to speak. In a lot of ways, the thing that I, I've come to went specifically to Leon and Joe's relationship um, was that Leon did this reunion, which was billed as a tribute to Joe Cocker. And he did it for Joe. Um, and clearly, when people do see the film, I don't see how you could watch my movie and not see it as a way of Leon making amends with his relationship with Joe Cocker, seeing that this was such a fundamental and foundational experience for him, how grateful he probably was to Joe for, you know, in a lot of ways, kicking off his career into the superstardom, uh, you know, threshold that it it, it reached because you know unfortunately for joe he his star sort of fell for a little bit even though he had a bunch of number one hits later on in his career leon was the one who was on the cover of rolling stone after the mad dogs and englishman tour not joe so 
yes, you know, the press loved hyping up the rift between the two of them. There really was no evidence of anything really negative or nasty happening they, they happening between them. They just had a falling out. That was that. Uh, as for other people's relationships with Joe on the tour, I think you see it in the film. Everyone who speaks about Joe Cocker thought the world of him. Like, you know, the nicest guy and just so sweet and so soulful, so tender. And the sort of image of sort of like a guttural figure, right, who just goes out there and he's just like the nasty blues singer that John Belushi impersonates, right? But no, he was a very soulful person with, with a huge heart. I would have loved to have met him. I, and I'm sure he was just such a lovely guy. And it's, you know, it was an honor to to make a piece about him. I was just happy to see that he was a sweet guy. I just didn't know anything about his personality in this day and age. You kind of, you learn these things, but I was happy to hear that everybody loved him. And he, yeah. I, he sounded like such a great guy. Rita Coolidge, who's in the film and was on the original tour, remarked how crazy packed the stage was, yet, I think it's a quote. She said, Leon knew exactly what was going on all over that stage. Now, what did you think of that? You're a music producer. You're a film director. I mean, it's just crazy how much was going on for him to keep track of. Yeah, absolutely. For me, going into this project, I've I've marveled at Leon Russell. I When I discovered Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I immediately, I didn't necessarily deep dive into Joe Cocker's catalog. I was the guy who was like, Leon Russell, I, you know, his magnetism, you know, it, it goes beyond just the fashion and the look and the top hats and the crazy outfits and stuff like that. You could tell this guy really is, uh, you know, just a, such a dynamic and quasi brilliant figure. When you learn about Leon and you learn about his unbelievably rich history and music prior to Mad Dogs and Englishmen and then afterwards as well, how could you not just love this man and his music? his contributions to the history of, of rock and roll prior to going into filmmaking. I, I, I still, you know, am, I still do work on records and I still work on music, but I was a music producer and am a music producer. And so I definitely wanted to be like Leon. I sort of like, you know, I, I modeled some of <laughs> I even sort of like, without thinking about it, like try like started dressing like him a little bit, you know, grew my beard long, wore cool hats and, uh, baseball t-shirts which i think yeah i'm wearing a baseball tee and a stetson hat right now um it's been fun for me too on these uh screenings a friend of mine made a replica of his famous holy trinity tank top that he wears in uh the mad dogs and englishman film on the tour and i've been wearing it to all the uh screenings and uh you know just as an ode to him but uh specifically to your question i mean look leon came from a big band background and then on top of that, a very strong love and desire uh, to create gospel music, which requires being able to direct large casts of people. Right. And so I, th I think his work with the Wrecking Crew, he was a he was an original member of the Wrecking Crew. Right. He not only did sessions for, you know, Joe Cocker, but he did it for Frank Sinatra and the Beach Boys. You know, he, it's it's crazy to read his credits. It's just kind of jaw dropping. He really saw it all. So he really understood the big band sound, probably learned a lot from Phil and from some of the wall of sound sessions that he was on. And I think just to, he was able to apply that to the Mad Dogs and the Englishman tour. Uh, and then even after that, with his band, The Shelter People, he took the big band thing even further. It, it wasn't as big as Mad Dogs and Englishmen, but he kept doing the big band thing, whereas Joe sort of stripped his his band down. So what also was really cool is to see the through line from Leon to Derek uh, and Susan, who are both trying to uh, 
carry the torch with the family band and with Tedeschi trucks it's like how do you make a a family band you know healthy and 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 thrive in this modern uh music environment with budgets and wellness in mind <laughs> right I'm obsessed with Leon ever since I saw his film A Poem is a Naked Person, which I think is probably similar to the original Mad Dogs film. It's like a lot of random B-roll. And he's just so cool. And I'm glad that your friend made you that shirt. And I would like that shirt. Um, <laughs> a friend of ours is writing a book on him, which I can't wait to read. Um, Bill Janovitz? Yeah. Oh, very cool. I think he went down to Tulsa in October really want to pick his brain about it or I should just wait to read the book but anyway can you share a bit of what it was like to have him so directly involved with this was it his last or one of his last interviews yeah it was his last filmed interview Uh, like I said you know I was such a Leon fan going into this that I was in a lot of ways uh, in awe when I was in the room with him at the rehearsals right and but at the same time though I'd worked with plenty of artists and I you know it was just sort of like okay remind yourself breathe in, keep your cool, you know, <laughs> still a fan, but you got to work with the guy. You got to make sure he's comfortable and you got to capture, you know, this magic that was happening. And, you know, for me, what was so cool about it, and I, uh, we've been talking a lot about it and I uh, developed a relationship with um, his estate. You know, you could make a Leon Russell film festival uh, at this point. And you mentioned one of the, the films, probably my favorite of the Leon Russell films, A Poem is a Naked Person by Les Blank. Uh, and then there's the original Mad Dogs and Englishman film. There's uh, The Union, which is about the Elton John, Leon Russell album that came out a few years ago uh, that Cameron Crowe directed. And now there's my film. Uh, so there's this huge canon of Leon Russell filmography. And I think the running thread between all of them up to this point is that you you don't really learn a lot about Leon. You don't really see him for who he is. He's sort of like this cold, mystic, Rasputin-like guy who's too cool for school, right? He's just the coolest. <laughs> but uh, in my film, and it was just the way he was that week, he really let his guard down, and he was really, it turns out, who he truly was. Just a very funny, sweet, humble, gracious guy, cracking jokes. We tried to slip in as many little nuggets as we could throughout the film because he was having so much fun. He was really just loving playing music with Tedeschi trucks and all these people he hadn't seen in 45 years right yeah for me that was just such a thrill and it was such an honor to be able to release that and also what I feel okay sharing this is that his wife Jan and his kid uh, his son Teddy uh, they just recently watched the film and they loved it and they sent me like comments about how we really did him justice and showed him for who he truly was But yeah, and then with the final interview, uh, that was a one-on-one interview that I did with him. I kind of had a feeling that that his health wasn't in a good place. Uh, I'm grateful I got the time uh, with him, but I'm also really glad that I was so um, persistent in trying to get that follow-up interview as soon as I did after the reunion tour. And it really just timing-wise worked out. Couldn't have worked out more perfectly. Peter Shapiro, (laughs) to the rescue again, he gave me the Capitol Theater to interview him in which actually by chance the mad dogs played at the Capitol theater. So when Leon's bus pulled up, uh, it was like, do you remember playing here? And he, you know, man, he was like, yeah, I played in a lot of places before, but this place seems a little familiar. Sure. It's like, well, the mad dogs played on this stage right here. And so that was really quite cool. And he couldn't have been nicer. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have been able to spend some time with my hero, uh, before he passed. It's great. And it's nice that the family, 
was in touch and gave you the thumbs up. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Jesse Lauter, who's the director of Learning to Live Together, The Return of Mad Dogs and the Englishman. You know, one of the things, and we've alluded to it, uh, all of us, I think, is you utilize a lot of split time in the film, you know, very effectively, I might add, to tell the original story and then through the eyes of the new musicians who are doing this. Did you know from the beginning you wanted to do that? Or is it something as you were processing it, it's like, well, we can do this and show one story while furthering another one, you know, I mean, uh, it works effectively throughout the film. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I feel like to me, it's funny. I, it kind of goes back to Leon. Uh, you know, his nickname was the master of space and time. Right. I, I made it a point to, to drew that I really wanted to play around with time. You know, there is like a, definitely a chronology, but you know, let's have a little freedom around that let's try to, to blur the lines a little bit just to, to be able to emphasize these connections that exist. And I, yeah, you know, we use split screen with some of the stage performances and showing some of the old with the new. And then you see some of those moments that are really just sort of kismet where people are doing the same mannerisms even. And, and it was really quite amazing, but yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, there's, no straight path. And I, I personally, uh, when it comes to some music films, I don't really like them being very straight and didactic. You know, um, I wanted to make something that was musical. You know, I was sort of naturally following the flow of what we had captured and withdrew, uh, you know, editing the, the narrative sections of the film. And I did edited all the concert sections. You know, I think we were able to create a flow that you know, I, I, I hope does justice to the Mad Dogs' music and to the music that came before and after uh, each of the people involved. Absolutely. It was a perfect statement, I thought. Thank you. Going back a bit to some more Leon stuff, I really love that this film is like a bit of an homage to his greatness. And I actually 
I got a little tear in my eye when he and Claudia sang together. It was so magical. And, you know, I'm sure his death made his participation in the film just next level for you. Where were you in the process of the film or the film's editing when he passed away? And did you change your approach of the completion of the film differently after he died? It's a great question. Um, well, so we started shooting in 2015 and uh, Leon passed in November of 2016, actually the week that Trump got elected. <laughs> it was only a few days after November the 9th. Uh, God, it was just and Leonard Cohen died that week. Sharon Jones passed away that week. It was just an awful week. We, you know, we were sort of at this stasis in the film. I didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't really have any money. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to get funding for this. And uh, we kept coming across obstacles and roadblocks along the way. You know, I, I mentioned that, you know, I did this one on one interview with Leon and I had been editing some of the performance pieces and I had uh, Leon's email and I sent him a couple of my cuts and I wanted to make sure that I got his personal blessing. And uh, he he sent it to me. I'll never forget it. He, he sent me a. Uh, uh, just like a couple words. It was like, looks great. Proceed. Mm. <laughs> Very cryptic. Um, so, you know, it was nice to have his, uh, you know, blessing to to move on and, and to march forward. But we were, like I said, at this point where I didn't know if the film would ever get done in the way I wanted, wanted it to get done. So when he passed away, I think it gave all of us sort of this motivation that we needed to do this for Leon. Uh, you know, we had this wealth of footage and the my desire and passion to be able to tell the story. And we had this last interview with him. And so I think that sort of gave us a push. And shortly thereafter, we started really raising the money to be able to get it to the finish line, which still took a very <laughs> long time. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was, you know, hey, if he was still with us, I would, you know, all the better, you know, but. You know, I don't know if we would have gotten the film done, <laughs> you know, it, you know, fortunately for us, uh, we had everything we needed from him with the film. I really hate saying that, but it's just a fact, you know, I didn't need to go back to him with another interview. Um, if I didn't have that follow up interview with him, I, I don't know if I would have had a movie. Wow. Well, it gave you a little push from the afterlife. Yes, indeed. Indeed. You know, Sonia mentioned the girl of the North Country duet, which to me was one of the most brilliant, beautiful moments as well. Yeah, no question. But there's another one, and I'm sure there are tons of them, but there, there's when Rita Coolidge, when she sings Bird on a Wire, I think, and um, it's a rehearsal. And there's just this really touching exchange between the two of them at the end of the song. And I'm just wondering, like, how you and your cameraman were so on high alert that these just these winks and and mouthing I love you and these words were happening I'm sure all the time yeah no question there's a lot of little moments like that someone once said to me too I think it wasn't specifically after that moment that you cited with Rita uh it's after she performs Bird on the Wire and then she goes to Leon Leon I loved you and then she just like is having a hard time getting her mic back into the uh, into the mic holder and says, I just can't get the mic back into the holster. And she kind of like is a little embarrassed, you know, and uh, it was funny when I, I saw Rita a couple weeks ago and she said, I love that moment because it's really sort of the sweet moment because her and Leon used to be in a relationship. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I got to give all credit on moments like that to uh, Jojo Pennebaker and uh, uh, Josh Goldman, um, you know, who are behind the cameras. Uh, Jojo's nickname is, uh, I think this came from uh, the great uh, director and photographer, Danny Clinch. He calls him Tracker because he really just has this penchant for, you know, picking up little moments like that. I'm not sure who specifically got that shot in that moment, but, um, you know, uh, Josh is an incredible filmmaker in his own right. So I was really lucky to have two amazing aces uh, on camera for uh, the rehearsals and there were so many other moments like that that I just couldn't that we left out that I wish I could have left in. But, you know, it's just like, you know, special ones like that. You know, I, I I'm glad you appreciate that. Thank you. You mentioned this earlier, and uh, Derek Trucks is one of the few people who kind of fits that Leon Russell mode, and probably one of the few people who could pull off a show like this. And, you know, to me, he nailed it when he said, whenever there's a collaboration these days, it's pretty cheap because no one gives themselves to the band, but he does. Can you talk about the similarities between these two band leaders and their approach to music? God, it's amazing. I I feel like the similarities between Derek and Leon are just too numerous to list. But the, I think if I were to give a general statement on it, you know, I they just operate at this frequency that no one else really does when it comes to music. Um, they're they're really tuned to this higher power <laughs> that, that allowed them to to become the people, the musicians and the band leaders that they are. And you could see that the torch was passed. Uh, Leon, we, you know, we make note of it in the film, was very trusting of Derek to, to sort of just do his thing, even though Derek was like, hey, you know, like, how do you want to be involved? This was your baby the first time he says those words specifically in the film. And Leon didn't need to be demanding or order people around he was just trusting of Derek and Susan and everything that they pulled together for this reunion. The torch is truly passed. And the other thing that's so <laughs> that, you know, you can't help but notice is this love between uh, Susan and Leon, uh, which, uh, you know, Derek and Susan are married. And then very clearly there's a, there's a real sort of chemistry also between Leon and Susan, uh, which is, ju- which was just awesome. And we display that throughout the film too, because there's a lot of tender moments between the two of them. You know, like I said before, when it comes to time, it's sort of the lines are blurred. You know, Leon, Derek and Susan could have all existed in the late 60s. But, you know, so it is that they were all born at different points in their careers uh, that they you know, weren't able to collaborate as much. But, you know, I think someone once said to me, too, that like Derek and Susan were in a way like a replacement uh, for Delaney and Bonnie for Leon. I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that makes a lot of sense. But different, you know, but different. Uh, so, yeah, just that that scene with the three of them on the bus where they're able to talk, that to me was really important because uh, you're really able to see they come from such a similar place musically, have so, so many of the same influences, uh, deep blues, deep gospel and soul. And, yeah, and so I, I was very lucky to be, you know, around the three of them. That camaraderie was really special to witness. I love that part in the film where where you can just see Leon looking at Susan with these just loving doe eyes. And I was I was jealous. I was like, oh, yeah. But Susan, she's such a great vocalist. It was really, really amazing to to have her involved so much and just see see her just kill it. It was fantastic. So, you know, I've been thinking about that tour past and present and you can't imagine a current tour 
happening like this with so many heavy hitters and a tour and a you know just multiple dates like it doesn't feel possible although you know I do appreciate that Susan said it it's like what a Tedeschi trucks tour would be like a small she called it a small circus so aside from that do you feel like there's any modern day equivalents to the large circus that was the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. Yeah, it's really hard to peg uh, if there's any other ones. Uh, I mentioned the Trey Anastasio band, but you know they uh, they're a little bit smaller than Sadesky Trucks. Yeah, there's really not a lot of big bands doing it. You know, there's there's uh, large artists who tour with very large ensembles, right? But who do it in such a way of Mad Dogs? I really feel like Tedeschi Trucks is the only ones, you know, still doing it in that fashion. And they're not even half the size of the Mad Dogs and Englishmen. But yeah, they get close. And and then on any given night too, they'll invite a bunch of other guest musicians out on stage and they'll 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 pile it on for sure and you know add to the uh the circus like atmosphere. But they're definitely a way more controlled and contained environment than the Mad Dogs and Englishmen were. Yeah, I mean I only thought of a couple which were actually not even shows, but they're like I think Damon Albarn had that Africa Express train where he took a bunch of people, but they never played a show. I don't think it was just like Uh, a recording project, but I I once saw, I actually, I saw gorillas live. uh, One of the only tours they ever did. They played at uh, the Apollo in 2006 and uh, they did that. The second record demon days in its entirety. And it got to sort of a mad dogs family band, like level. There was a stage. There was a Harlem youth choir. Ike Turner even sat in at that show, which was crazy, but he had, it was Damon. Damon definitely gravitates towards the big band thing and family band thing for sure. And I think he's probably like Leon and like Derek, a big fan of Sly and the family stone. You know, it's funny. You know, we talk about it in the film. It's just sort of, you know, modern big band music, right? Like big bands have existed in the American ethos uh, since the early 20th century. So what all Mad Dogs and Englishmen is, is just sort of recreating that ethos where they're playing these songs, these cover songs from not only the, the American canon, but the British canon as well. And so they sort of just put this, you know, at the time, a modern view on a big band performance, you know, with rock and roll being at the heart of it. That's a great way to look at it. It's perfect with the band leader. It's amazing. (laughs) We need more of that. Yeah, we do. We do. But, you know, it's cost prohibitive. That's the problem. (laughs) But but you have to, you know, bands like Tedeschi Trucks, they work really, really hard to keep it alive. So let's ask you a couple of questions about making the film. As you mentioned, budgets in these tours and stuff. How difficult was it, you know, getting the rights to both the film and the publishing. I mean, that's that's a big thing these days. That was probably our most Herculean task that we needed to accomplish. And, you know, I I could have made a film that that limited the amount of archival, um, but we really felt like, it. you know, we had this opportunity to do this and we really needed to include as much of it as possible. You know, as I uh, alluded before, um, you know, there wasn't any original songs in the Mad Dogs and like very few original songs in the Mad Dogs and Englishman canon. Actually, there's probably only one, even if you would call it that. And that's the song that is um, where the title of our film comes from, uh, Learning to Live Together. That comes from a song called Space Captain by Matthew Moore, who was a backing vocalist in the Mad Dogs band and was also at the reunion. Uh, I kind of think of it as the theme song, (laughs) Mad Dogs and Englishman. 
But aside from that, we're talking about Beatles covers, Bob Dylan covers, Leonard Cohen, the band, Rolling Stones. These are like the biggest names in um, classic rock publishing, right? So yeah, we had this huge task to clear all those songs and the publishing for those songs. And then also all the archival footage. It took us a couple of years. We had a wonderful uh, music clearance person and Abigail Kendi, who does it for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and Larry Yellen, who was our, our archival clearance person. And it was a group effort. There's no doubt about it. But we created a <laughs> we created a, a way for us to make it, uh, you know, not cost prohibitive. And uh, fortunately, we were able, managed to clear all the songs and all the archival and uh, <laughs> get this film released. So, yeah, at, at times, you know, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, oh, God, did we do that? And, oh, yes, everything's clear. Everything is cleared. It's all done. It's over. Well, I, I probably, I probably <laughs> yeah. speak for everyone in thanking you for, for merging those two because it was brilliant. And Thank you. So you've mentioned your filmmakers that it worked with you, your DP and whatnot. But in the original film, Leon said, don't get an entertainment crew, get a news crew. Yeah. What was your process in choosing your collaborators? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, the the production crew that uh, that wound up shooting most of it, Jojo Pennebaker and Josh Goldman, they came as a part of the the production company that actually was doing the live streaming at the Lock and Festival that year. And I actually had a relationship with uh, with them, and it, it it all just worked out. You know, sort of like an all in the family situation. But what's kind of uh, interesting about uh, your question is. Um, the Mad Dogs and Englishman camera crew was just uh, three cameras, and that's all we had for the original shoot too. So there was sort of like you know the thumbtacks and and uh, you know rubber bands uh, philosophy behind our shoot it was just sort of capture, capture, go, 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 because we had very little time to prepare. It was just sort of like yeah, we're gonna fly by the seat of our pants here, you know, and which I kind of feel like was the ethos of the original film too. So, yeah, I think there was definitely uh, a, a similarity between ours and the original in that way. Well, you have a ton going on, and, and I can't imagine you fly by the seat of your pants. But um, aside <laughs> from this movie, you know, you have uh, tons of music production credits, you know, both a Dylan and a Leonard Cohen tribute album. Uh, you do a weekly live stream concert series. You DJ music festivals. I mean, did I miss anything? <laughs> god you know it's funny uh, yeah yeah you did miss something <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> um i do a lot i i try to do as much for uh, in the world of music as i can i yes i've worked on a ton of records i i mix records produce records i, I do this uh live stream concert series for relics magazine that i produce and we have a ton of artists. It's been mostly a pandemic project, but we're going to keep it alive actually post-pandemic. And uh, we have the only live stream concert venue in New York City. It's like an exclusive live streaming venue. And bands come in there. They feel like they're playing a show. Uh, and yeah, I do DJ uh, music festivals from time to time. I also actually I work at a synagogue. I oversee production, video and audio for uh, Central Synagogue, uh, which is in Midtown Manhattan. And that's a wonderful job. I've done it for a very long time. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, it's interesting when you juggle all these things, you know, it, you know, I do it for for the love of music and spirituality and uh, and for art and art for art's sake. So, yeah, right on. So I know the movie is currently in theaters, um, but otherwise, how and when will people be able to watch this? 
Uh, well, so I direct everyone to maddogsdoc.com. That's M-A-D-D-O-G-S-D-O-C.com. And then it's also maddogsdoc on all of our socials. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So facebook.com slash maddogsdoc. We're exclusively theatrical right now. Uh, so the only way you can see it is by going to the theaters. Um, we have screenings all the way through the first quarter of this year. And it's, it's crazy how much life this has had because we had our premiere in late September and it's just kept going. Um, and we keep getting these bookings. So the idea is that people go see the film in theaters and the word of mouth, uh, you know, continues to spread and then eventually we'll land on, uh, an on-demand platform of <laughs> some notoriety. <laughs> and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, very soon we'll have some news on the on-demand front. Great. And what's next for you? Did you enjoy making the film? Are you going to take on more long-form projects? I loved making this movie. What was uh, I feel I, I am going to be taking on more films and and I'm in the process of developing a couple projects which I unfortunately cannot talk about today but uh, in this in this very similar vein you know to the mad dogs and Englishman project uh, films about music history um, maybe with a classic rock sort of tilt uh, it marries all sorts of things that I just love it marries music history uh, visual sound storytelling and uh, it's a medium that I feel very comfortable in and uh, yeah this will not be my last film so looking forward to making more uh, you know, I'd like to thank you for speaking with us today, Jesse, and I'd like to thank you for your fantastic film. To me, it was kind of the essence of making music and the joy and the camaraderie and the friendship that is at the heart of that, you know, both in the act of doing it and in your movie. So I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out in the theater. I, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It was great to talk to you, Jesse. I appreciate it. I love this film. Thank you so much. A really, really pleasure talking to both of you. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That'sFantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 